Good morning, everyone. As we look at uh, our first reading from First Kings, and the theme there is discipleship. There's a theme of dedication and choice. God chose Elisha to replace Elijah as the prophet of Israel. And in turn, Elisha was free to choose. To follow what God wanted uh, for his life. Our second reading from Galatians, uh, St. Paul will tell the Galatians, uh, despite their union with Christ and the gift of the Holy Spirit in their community, they would still struggle uh, to walk in holiness. They would still struggle against Paul says flesh, what he means are the ways of the world, the ways of their times. And he told them, stop devouring each other with your words and your hatred and your anger and your jealousy and your selfishness. This is what was going on. And our gospel, Jesus rejects retaliation and expects wholehearted commitment from his disciples. Unlike the first reading where Elijah tells his disciple Elisha, Go and attend to your personal matters. Here we see Jesus in the gospel doing something different, which is not unusual and really doesn't have much tension about that. Jesus always kind of helped us to understand. Jesus, in that final part of the gospel, uh, tells his disciples only wholehearted commitment and attention to the kingdom now is what matters. And your personal affairs are second. <laughs> So we'll have to pray and let that fall on our heart. Uh, um, my friends, then, on this uh, 13th Sunday in Ordinary Time, all the scriptures, all three of them, have the theme of the cost of discipleship. Uh, it talks about our commitment in following the Lord, walking in holiness. Uh, in the gospel, the first part of the gospel is about tolerance and about not retaliating. It also has a theme of removing obstacles, the three strange little quirky stories that Jesus gives at the end. Uh, that's about removing things that get in the way of the faith journey. And this last mention, the removing of obstacles, is something that our Lord had in mind when he invited people to be his disciples. He expected them to remove from their lives whatever stood in the way of following him. And my friends, he made a puzzling statement. Let the dead bury their dead. And Jesus did not mean that as an opposition to burying of loved ones. That's not what he's talking about. However, in one sense, his declaration means that those who reject him are like dead people since they have rejected the Lord of life. But I believe Jesus was also, it was his way of saying that we must decide that nothing is more important than loyalty to him. Our first reading today describes an episode in the Old Testament in which a man, his name is Elisha, had to make a decision. He had a choice to make. We are told that Elijah the prophet puts his cloak over him, and this is a symbol of the prophetic office that is going to be Elisha's then. It's a way of transferring power, if you will. When he threw it over Elisha, he was inviting him to succeed him as the prophet of Israel. And it does seem Elisha hesitated for a moment. And we are told he thought of his parents. And uh, what should he do? He had the freedom to choose. 
His freedom allowed him to make his own decision on this. There was a strong resolution burning in his heart, absolutely. And I believe God understood that he was committed to him. We are told that he slaughtered his oxen and burned his plowing equipment. This is a symbol of his giving up his livelihood. That means this was his job, this was his work, but not anymore because he's going to be a disciple of the prophet. It also meant that he would not look back. There was no going back. Then we are told he showed great hospitality. He fed his people in a farewell to them. And then he left to be the disciple of Elijah, to prepare to become the prophet. Now, my friends, in our English language, uh, we would understand something of the effect that what Elisha did was burned his bridges. <laughs> there was no going back. And now, we see that as bad. Don't burn your bridges, we're always told. But in this case, Jesus invites us to do that, though to follow him with dedication, with fidelity, and unreservedly. And, my friends, those three little stories, sometimes people, uh, I want to point out that in those stories where Jesus said, when they said, I'll follow you, and Jesus had a quip for him, and I'll, I will, but, I will, but. And note that the choice that each one of those men had to make was not between good and evil. The choice was between good and better, because none of the things that Jesus listed were bad. He just pointed out there was something better in that moment. And so, my friends, um, at baptism, at baptism, and I'll be celebrating a baptism right after Mass today, at baptism, the priest or the deacon uh, represents Christ, and there's a part in the baptism where we talk about a white garment, and a white garment is placed upon the person who's being baptized. And in the same way that the prophet put his cloak over Elisha. In baptism, we put a white cloak over the person. That symbolizes their newness. They're, they're a new person, or all the baptized are to be a new people with a new life and a new calling. God puts a call on everyone who's baptized. And that part of that call is to a life of true freedom. Jesus wants all of us to be free of any obstacles that get in the way of discipleship with him. But my friends, I think most of us who are older, we have come to understand that freedom is an often complex reality. It is said that we live in a free society. But of late, certainly I have, and I expect you have also, we have witnessed and had to endure the abuse of freedom. Our society has canonized, or as one elected official put it on Friday, will enshrine the phrase pro-choice. In other words, freedom of choice. That phrase has been used to justify some of the most wicked of ideas and activities in society. To say that freedom of choice is the most fundamental of human rights is not accurate. It is wrong. And based on Christian theology and the scriptures, it is certainly not what Jesus was talking about. The kind of freedom Jesus gives us is for the sake of love. We saw that in the second reading when Paul's addressing the Galatians. Jesus does not force your eye to become his disciples. Jesus does not force us to be devoted to him. Jesus 
does not force us to love him above everything. He gives you and I the freedom to choose. And I think mostly because love which is forced is not love at all. Faithful to this idea of Jesus, St. Paul, who teaches us that we have been called to live in freedom, but not a freedom that gives rein to the flesh. Willy-nilly, whatever we want, is what he's talking about. And by flesh, he's, not, he's talking about the worldly ways. Paul will eventually develop the notion that this free reign would actually turn into a slavery. So my friends, people have the freedom to do what they want. If they choose to do drugs, they will eventually become addicted to it and they will be enslaved. I've been trying to keep up on the latest notions of human relationships with each other. Uh, and I am just baffled by all the definitions now and everything else, and I don't understand them. I'm ignorant that way. But I don't understand all these new emotional and physical aspects of this. But it seems at some point they will become enslaved to these new ideas, to adverse and violence. To those who freely choose violence, they will become a slave of it. You are not free then. And these are grave matters, but what about maybe things that are not so grave? So I will use St. Paul when he said, stop devouring each other. So when we allow the habit of gossip, the vice of arrogance, and a spirit of self-centeredness and selfishness to rule, we have in effect abused freedom also. Wickedness and sin is a slavery. It is opposite of freedom. My friends, in one of the Eucharistic memorials or acclamations of the Mass, we use particularly at Lent, Jesus, we acknowledge, pays a great price for our freedom. In that phrase, we say, Save us, Savior of the world, for by your cross and resurrection, you have set us free. Jesus freed us from sin so that of our own free will, by our choice, we may love him unreservedly and, as the scriptures tell us, that we can choose to truly care and love with charity of heart others. My friends, that last part of the, the beginning part of the gospel, the theme of retaliation is there. So I want to do a note about freedom of religion. In the coming weeks, I will address freedom of speech because I can, <laughs> because it's freedom of speech. So you're getting a glimpse of what I'm going to do. But on freedom of religion, every person has the right to worship, and they should be able to do so without intimidation by anyone, not by people, not by government. And we hold that. What is not part of freedom of religion is the freedom to cause harm to another denomination of Christian. What is not part of that freedom is to enact war 
against another religion. As I recall, in the history of this world, there have been some religious people who have done truly wicked things in the name of God. And that is truly the definition of blaspheme of the Holy Spirit. We should not delude ourselves, as some religious leaders did in the past, and do that. To do wicked things in God's name is wicked. My friends, these past couple of days I've been reflecting and I ask myself, why do some people hate so intensely and hate so viciously in the name of God? And God is the Father of all, all of us. And I thought, is it because they're not really religious, just using it? Maybe it's because they don't really know God and His Son and the Spirit. Maybe they have true ignorance of the ways of our Lord. And I thought, maybe they're just emotionally and psychologically incapable. And I could not escape coming to another reason that possibly these people have used religion for wicked political and military reason. Such hatred and anger and retaliation harm us more than they could possibly harm those who are the object of such anger and hatred and retaliation. In my opinion, Jesus took these things to the cross a long time ago, and Christians must leave it there at the cross. Such things, hatred, vengeance, retaliation, deep-seated anger are poison to you and I, and they are poison to the Catholic faith. They are poison to the Christian communities. And it's certainly we read in the gospel, they are disappointing to Christ himself. I reflected and I thought, I wonder what my Lord was more disappointed by the inhospitality of the Samaritans and their hatred towards him as a Jew? Or was he more disappointed in his friends, the apostles, who asked him, do you want us to bring down fire to destroy and kill them? don't know which one would have been more disappointing but clearly from the gospel he was disappointed as he rebuked his friends my friends I thought about what was in those apostles heads at that time and one of the things that came to me was their notion of any enemy of mine is an enemy of God <laughs> yeah no that's not going to work for Jesus Friends, one of the other things I want you to think about is walking through Samaria to get to Jerusalem was a shorter route, and Jesus never does anything willy-nilly. It's always calculated. So did he take that route because it was the shortest route? Or did he take the route because he had hoped that when he got there, he would be able to extend his hand in friendship 
to those. Oh. <laughs> Is my homily that bad? But my friends, these things, based on the first part of our gospel, are disappointing to our Lord. They were disappointing to him on that day when he was walking with them to that town. And it is disappointing to him today when his Christians do the same thing. So I ask that we take to heart these things. Now, my friends, I would like to read to you a letter from the bishops of Washington State regarding the turning over or the overturn of Roe versus Wade. Respecting the dignity of every human life from conception to natural death is a core tenet of the Catholic faith. This conviction compels us to seek justice and advocate for the vulnerable, the voiceless, and the afflicted. Upholding the dignity of every human person drives us to care for the poor, to welcome immigrants, to seek racial and social justice, and to oppose abortion. We commend the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe versus Wade and give individual states the opportunity to enact laws that respect life. We welcome this opportunity to reduce the number of abortions in the United States and to build a culture of life. Due to laws passed prior to Roe, abortion remains legal in Washington state. Regardless of the legal status of abortion, the church's call to respect life remains unchanged. We must continue not only to speak out against abortion, but also to care for mothers who face unplanned or challenging pregnancies. As mothers and families choose life under difficult circumstances, we are called to accompany them on their journey and to do all we can to support them and their children. Advocating for life does not end with the birth of a child. Respecting the dignity of every human person means ensuring that families' basic needs are met and that they are given the opportunity to thrive. At this time, we invite all Catholic parishes, institutions, organizations, and individuals to redouble efforts to accompany women and couples confronted with unexpected or difficult pregnancies. Many Catholic programs throughout the state provide assistance, accompaniment, and mentorship to vulnerable families as they nurture their children from pregnancy through early childhood. Now is the time for the faithful to offer a viable alternative to abortion by increasing efforts to serve families in need. Much work remains to build a culture of life in our state. Through the Washington State Catholic Conference, we will continue to advocate for public policies that support life and help struggling families thrive. Our bishops ask, please join us in advocating for the common good. And finally, we invite you to pray with us that all will one day recognize that every human life is sacred and deserving of reverence, protection, and assistance in time of need. Signed in the heart of Christ, the Most Reverend Paul Achen, Archbishop of Seattle, the Most Reverend Eusebio Elizondo, Auxiliary Bishop of Seattle, the Most Reverend Frank Schuster, Auxiliary Bishop of Seattle, the Most Reverend Joseph Tyson, Bishop of Yakima, and the Most Reverend Thomas A. Daly, Bishop of Spokane. I commend our bishops for a letter that is well written. 
and I concur with their sentiments. Now, I want to, I'm moving away from the ambo because now I'm going to give you a personal piece as your pastor. You may throw it away if you like. But people often want to peek into the heart of their priest. So I'm going to give you a glimpse into this heart. On Friday, after Mass, someone approached me and said, Father, you don't seem ready to celebrate, or you seem unhappy. And I said, I am not unhappy. I am not ready to celebrate, but I am not unhappy. I recognize the victory of the overturning of Roe versus Wade. But how a victory is given or won is important, too. And it had been my prayer and my hope that there would be an end to abortion. But it would be because the people of this nation would have come to discover the destruction of life that happens. The justices have decided that 1973 was a wrong decision based on the tenets of our Constitution. So they have corrected a wrong. But the damage is done. And the reverberation of that is wretched. I recognize it as a victory. But the other way, when the people of a nation decide no more, no more, that is when society changes. You've heard me tell you, governments cannot legislate morality. They can put laws into place and make people afraid, but it will not change their heart. And when I hear politicians screaming about saving the soul of a nation and the heart of the nation, I just want to scream. You don't even know what that is. And for governments that are deficient of morality, how do they legislate it? I look for... God to change the heart of the people because when this happens then the society will change and for me when I say pro-life and this is still the teachings I will never say anything against our teachings I will always be with our church but when I say that I mean it across the board because when I go and visit elderly people in homes and they cannot afford to live, and their families cannot afford to give them the care that they deserve and the dignity, then something is still wrong. And when they contemplate euthanasia, meaning to take medicine to die because they're a burden, and they've been told they're a burden, our elderly, that is wrong. They have value. They are cedars of this society. We need them and they have value. And in the middle, the rate of suicide among our young people is deplorable because they are being told that life is disposable and if it is difficult, then just end it. So when I say pro-life, I want that dealt with also. They are our future, our young ones. 
But if they feel that suicide is better, what is society telling them? And what are we doing? So yes, when Father says, pro-life, I am talking about that also. Deuteronomy 30, 19 through 20. The Lord God said, I have set before you life and death, the blessings and a curse. Choose life. Choose life, then that you and your descendants may live by loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice, and holding fast to my ways. For that will mean life for you, a long life for you to live on the land which the Lord has given. And from the book of Sirach, Ben Sirach, before everyone are life and death. Whichever they choose will be given them. So to our elderly, I tell you, you choose life. You have great value to this country, and don't let anyone tell you otherwise. To the young families, to moms, to women who are pregnant, and anyone within earshot of me who might even be contemplating abortion. Choose life. Choose life. And to our youth, choose life. You are important, and the world has beauty in it, and you have great reason to hope and to have joy and to plan futures of great joy. Choose life. Choose life always. In this, then, will our society begin to change. And all those other things from racial injustice uh, to uh, inequities in incomes, and that will all begin to change. So we still have a lot of work to do. We still have a lot of work to do. But I know it's always in God's time. Now, maybe this is too much of a peek into the Father's heart, <laughs> so I apologize. But now you know. Uh, where your pastor stands on these things. Evil is to be confronted always, but not, with, not by doing evil. Jesus spoke about that. Evil begets evil. Hatred begets hatred. Jesus used love to counter, and he was very patient. So let us use love also and be patient. But we must oppose evil when we see it. My friends, I always uh, thank you for giving attention to the homily, more so to Christ and his teachings and the teachings of Mother Church on this matter.